I have been fiddling with my own uh, preaching style and approach for about a year since family camp last year. Uh, I was reading a book and I spent a lot of time praying and walking and trying to figure out what uh, what God was calling me to do. And this this is a part of what I've been doing is fiddling and uh, not fiddling with a fiddle. Uh, I can't play Mission Impossible on a fiddle. I can uh, play cat being run over by a lawnmower. Uh, but I am trying different styles, different approaches. Uh, this will be a totally different style and approach than I usually do. I'm usually, like in the last six months, I've sort of started doing points and breaking things out in very different ways, and I am trying something different this morning. Uh, if you have an opinion, let me know, because uh, otherwise you're stuck with whatever I decide to do. Got it? All right. Once upon a time, there was... Actually, let's pray first. Uh, uh, Let's pray. Oh, sorry. I'll try and sit them really low, and I'll be the annoying school teacher instead of the annoying preacher. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would uh, help bring my my mind and my heart into focus. I'm kind of all over the place already. Uh, I pray that you would help me to... um, more than anything else, help me to share the gospel. Uh, I don't care if I say another word that is coherent or makes sense or anything else. Lord God, help me to preach the gospel this morning. If I if I stumble away from the scriptures, if I stumble into untruth, I pray that you would shut my mouth entirely. Uh, I pray that you would be with the folks who are here today. And the the thing I want folks to hear, Lord, I want them to hear your gospel. Even if it's the 10 millionth time they've heard it, I pray that it would fall afresh and new on their hearts and remind them that that you love us enough to send your son to die for our sins. I praise you and I thank you for being, for being a God that loves us that much. I pray for rain, not just soft rain, but hard rain in our sanctuary this morning in the hearts of those who have dry ground in the midst of their their chest and their inner sections. And I pray that you would break it up and bring new life. That the seeds planted would be watered by your spirit. Um, just most of all, let the gospel be heard this morning. In Christ name I pray. Amen. All right. Now, once upon a time, and for future reference, if you ever hear me say once upon a time, it is not scripture I am citing. <laughs> Probably. Once upon a time, there was a turtle. And this turtle was... Uh, lazily swimming along with the, t- the current of a river. And as he swam along, he spotted a scorpion. Uh, and the scorpion was on the shore looking forlorn as much as a scorpion can look, uh, looking forlorn at the other bank. And the turtle, keeping his distance, because, uh, you know, scorpion, right? Uh, Keeping his distance, he asks the scorpion, hey, what you doing? What's the problem? And the scorpion says to him, I've been standing here all day trying to figure out how to get to the other side of this river. And I just cannot figure it out. I can't swim. If I were a lobster, because lobsters are scorpions, let there be no doubt, they're water scorpions. Um, If I were a lobster, I could walk across. I could do this. I could do that. But I cannot get over there because I cannot swim. 
And he, he sat there looking sad, as sad as a scorpion can look. And the turtle was moved uh, to compassion for the scorpion. And he, he watched him for a little bit, and he thought, well, it would be the right thing to do to help this creature. And then he thought, but that's a scorpion, right? Do we pick up scorpions? Not if we can help it. Uh, even if they're candied, don't touch them. And so the scorpion finally builds up the drive and courage and asks, Mr. Turtle, would you please allow me to stand on your shell and catch a ride to the other side? And the turtle says, <laughs> that sorry look on your face isn't going to trick me. I am not taking you anywhere. Because the moment you get on my back, I, you'll sting me. You're a scorpion. That's what scorpions do, right? And the scorpion says, why would I do that? You're helping me. Plus, if I sting you, we'll both drown. And the turtle thinks about it, and that compassion in his heart comes back to the surface. And he thinks, I could be useful, and I could help this poor creature, and this would be the right thing to do. And he's right. If he stings me, we'll both drown. And so, after much deliberation, he says, fine, you can get on my back. And so he comes up to the shore, and the scorpion crawls on his back, and he hears through his little house, click, 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 you know, as the scorpion gets there. And he begins to cross the river, which... Turtles do very easily because they can swim, right? And as he's crossing, the scorpion is sitting on his back, seeing his objective draw closer, getting to where he belongs, achieving his purpose, right? Which is quite a thing. And he's staring at the back of the turtle's head. And the whole time he's staring at the back of the turtle's head, he was thinking, man, you never get this close to a turtle's head. Usually, if you get close enough, he hides in his little house. This is an opportunity I will never get again. But the water is splashing up on the scorpion's legs, and he thinks about it a little bit, and the turtle's swimming along, and finally the scorpion can hold it in no longer, and he stings the turtle in the back of the head. And immediately the venom takes hold, and the turtle begins to stiffen up, and he realizes from the pain in the back of his head, the pain in his neck, this is not a Father's Day analogy, that the, the scorpion has stung him. And they begin to sink, and he says, what have you done? You promised. I was doing something good for you. I was doing something good. Why would you do this? Now we will both drown. And the scorpion says, hey. Anybody know the last line? You knew what I was when you picked me up. They sank and they both drowned. I was going to change this story to include a snake instead of a scorpion. The problem with that is, anybody know the problem? Snakes swim. <laughs> that is right. And so the turtle would have to be awfully dumb. The original version of this story actually came from a fable. It is an Aesop's fable, and I, I am going to just quickly touch on this because it's interesting. A farmer, according to the Aesop's fable, was working his field. He was plowing and tilling and doing whatever else it is that farmers do once a year. Um, for, you know, they're twice a year they work, planting and sowing, or, and, you know, harvesting. Um, and he's out there, and it's cold, and the ground is frozen, and he comes across an asp. An asp is a 
fancy way of saying snake. And the asp is frozen. Y'all ever seen a frozen rattlesnake? Of course, this is Montana. And he sees the snake and he picks it up and feels pity on the snake. And so he slips the snake into his shirt to warm it up and save its life. And what happens? The snake warms up. He begins to move and he immediately bites the farmer. And the moral of the story for Aesop is kind deeds are wasted on wicked creatures. Uh, That is not the point of what I'm telling you. We're actually going to be talking about Daniel 5. And I really wanted to talk about snakes because they're a stronger biblical metaphor. And because we have the sense that snakes can kind of hypnotize us. And ultimately, what we're going to be talking about today is good things we pick up, good things we carry, good things we incorporate into our lives that hypnotize us sometimes and then bite us. And we are going to come back to this, you knew what I was when you picked me up, and we're going to talk about snakes. And specifically, Udalali, specifically how snakes hypnotize us. Most of the reason I came around to the snake thing was because I wanted to use this picture. Um, We are in Daniel 5. If you would like to follow along in the text, find a Bible around you, look up Daniel 5, and we will work our way through. We are doing Daniel during the summer. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we did part of Daniel 5 last week. We're doing a different part this week, probably going to do another part. I really like this chapter. I am excited about it, and I want to preach it. Um, But to catch you up, here's the background. Short story. Long story short. Uh, The king, King Belshazzar, is like the grand-nephew of Nebuchadnezzar, and he is holding a banquet, a big, sumptuous feast, And he is breaking every social norm in the process. It is what we would call a wild party today, right? His wild party includes him eating and getting drunk in front of people. In Babylonian society, these are huge taboos. You would never do them. Kings did not eat or drink and especially did not get drunk in front of anybody. They ate in solitude except with their servants because it was seen as a king needing something or being out of control, and like the king was never out of control. But Belshazzar was so arrogant that he said, I can do what I want, and he throws away all the social norms, and he has his wives and concubines join the party. Wild, crazy, insane party. And they're there, which is also a big no-no for Babylonian society, because women didn't eat with men, especially kings. And so they're all there, and they're having, there are a thousand of his noblemen there, and they're drunk, and they're crazy. And he says, hey, my great-granduncle, he would have called him his father, because Belshazzar was a man who accomplished nothing in his lifetime. But Nebuchadnezzar was a giant. Nebuchadnezzar built one of the first world, world empires. And when he got done conquering the world, he built a city that was a wonder of the ancient world, right? King Nebuchadnezzar was everything, and Belshazzar wanted that glory without having to work. Because work isn't fun, but glory is loads of fun, right? Everybody wants to be looked at as awesome. And so he is having this party, and he says, you know what? We have defeated every other nation and every other god Go into my king, into the king's storehouses, bring out the Jewish cups and the, the temple pieces, and I'm going to drink out of them to show 
I am superior. Belshazzar didn't do anything, mind you. He did not conquer the Jews, did not sack Jerusalem. He didn't do any of that stuff. In fact, all he did was destroy. And in the moment, he destroys by eating and drinking, using the temple artifacts, or the temple-like like, uh, sacrificial stuff, the holy vessels of the temple, and he uses them for a common thing. That's a big deal. Take something holy and wonderful and awesome and uses it for a common thing. And these, I keep playing with my glasses. Put them down. These common things, or these, these holy things, he's drinking out of them, and suddenly a hand appears on the wall, like out of nowhere. And the wall is like covered in this white alabaster stuff. This, like, it's almost like chalk. And they would cover the walls with this in the castle. They actually have archaeological support for this. His, his palace would have had this white stuff. And they would write the king's like accomplishments on the walls. And suddenly a hand appeared and wrote three words on the wall. And the king immediately soiled himself. That is what the uh, original text says. I did not make that up. He, he soiled himself in fear, and he starts demanding, somebody tell me what that says. And he calls in all the wise men, and he makes grand promises, and no one can translate it. This sounds like the story of Joseph. And so he's there, and he is terrified. And by the way, he's got a good reason to be terrified. First off, he kind of ticked off God. That is a big mistake, right? And secondly, there is an army sieging the city while he's having this enormous party. Because the part of the story I did not include in this is that the Medo-Persian Empire has conquered the Babylonian Empire, and they are outside of the walls of Babylon. And the king is there, and he is wealthy, and he has power, and he is behind his walls, which are so big they could hold Roman chariot, like they could hold chariot races, not Roman chariot. They could hold chariot races on the tops of the walls. They were so thick. There was no way this castle was ever, ever going to be like, like broken into. The Persians were going to hang out out there. They were going to eat their food. They were going to drink their water and their wine and everything else. They were going to have a grand party, and nobody could touch Belshazzar. And to prove it, he offends one of the gods, which is also illegal in the Babylonian tradition. He should not have done this. He is doing whatever he feels like because he is drunk on his own power and his own authority and his own prestige and his own position, and all of it is stuff that he did not earn. Right? I talked to John about this sermon this week, and he said it's almost impossible for you to not like to, to avoid a political sermon here, and I'm not going to do a political sermon. So he sees this, and one of his uh, gals comes to him and says, Hey, what about this Daniel fellow? I used to advise your dad. Have him come and interpret. He can do dreams. And so Daniel comes in. And so Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, which is an incredibly expensive clothing item, 
and have a gold chain placed around your neck. By the way, it was illegal for anyone other than the king to wear a gold chain unless the king gave them permission. And so he's saying, not only will I put you in the finest Gucci, Armani, uh, bougie clothes. Ask the little kids, they know what that means. Uh, I assume, I don't know, I just made it up. Um, he puts them in the nicest clothes and he says, you know, you'll get the nicest clothes and you'll get a special thing to wear to show that I am your guy and you're my guy. It'll be a seal of approval and it'll be awesome. Oh, a uh, gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. By the way, the kingdom ain't what it was six months ago, but I will still give you the third highest position. I will give you everything. That's quite a deal, isn't it? Then Daniel answered the king. By the way, this is an example of picking up a snake. Everybody with me? Nebuchadnezzar would have people torn and their families torn to pieces, literally torn to pieces, and their houses reduced to local garbage dumps if they offended him. And Daniel spoke very boldly to Nebuchadnezzar. And now to the king, he says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel is like, he is, he is the Chuck Norris of prophets, I think, at this point, right? Like he says, look, I don't want your stuff. By the way, there's a kind of a cute little thing happening here. The king is besieged. He ain't going to survive this. Everybody with me? Belshazzar is hosed. We learned last time I preached, which was two weeks ago, uh, Belshazzar's own people were going to murder him. Right? <laughs> Later that evening. He is not surviving this event. And Daniel, I suspect, kind of knows it, but he's like, well, what good is a 30-year kingdom? It ain't going to exist soon. What good is your seal of approval? You ain't going to exist soon. And your clothes, I mean, the weeds go in the fire, so will the clothes. I ain't going to offend my God on your behalf. Plus, I ain't going to owe you nothing. But I'll tell you something. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar. Is it his father? No. Granduncle. But he's tickling the guy's ego, right? Gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. By the way, the emphasis throughout the book in Daniel is this, and Daniel is saying it again. Your granduncle, Nebuchadnezzar, accomplished nothing on his own. He did great things because God put him in a position and allowed him to do it. God is in charge. He controls. He, he has his hand on everything. He is God. And because God blessed that man, he rose up and he did great things. All the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. This is an exciting story so far because he's still talking directly to the king, the guy who can have him torn to pieces. 
Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and lived like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Now, real quick. Nebuchadnezzar did what Belshazzar did. Nebuchadnezzar stood on the top of the palace and said, this place is mine and I am awesome. And God's voice came to him. Sorry, I keep doing it. Uh, God's voice came to him and said, hey, you didn't do nothing. I gave it to you. And if you're going to be prideful, I'll show you who's in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar did not repent. And ultimately, he was cast from the kingdom, and he went crazy. And there's actually a medical diagnosis associated with what he had, but he thought he was an ox. And he wandered around the fields. There is a scholarly theory that I think is very interesting that Daniel took care of him. Because Daniel, like the way that he talks about Nebuchadnezzar in the original like, like languages, it's very soft. And it shows some affection, which is interesting. But Nebuchadnezzar was kicked down and crushed. And he was humbled. And from that humble place, he repented. And he changed. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, he got drunk on his own power and his own accomplishment. He carried the scorpion, right? He picked up the snake and he handled it. And handling that snake, he allowed the snake to hypnotize him, right? The eyes started swirling and Sir Hiss stared at him and said, this is the way things are. You rock. And when the snake finally bit him, he survived. And he repented. However, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. My ancient languages are terrible. I apologize. I have butchered them. Here is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. By the way, Mene is repeated twice. The second repetition in uh, the ancient language is an emphasis of like, this is true. It's like, verily, verily, or I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, or really, really long sermon, right? You say it twice, it emphasizes it. Everybody with me? So, Mene, Mene, God has numbered your days and you are at the end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting and parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler of the kingdom for a few hours. Because what's just going to happen here is his own people are going to murder him. And that impregnable city... Well, there's a river running underneath the walls, and that's how they got water. And they figured no one would ever be able to get under that wall with the river running so hard until they dammed the river further up, and the army marched right in underneath these walls that were impenetrable. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It is a hard truth there's a hard truth that power and authority hypnotizes, doesn't it? I mean, heck, if we had a politician in my lifetime 
oh, I know the one on your team is good, but like, the truth is they all get hypnotized and become arrogant and they believe that they are God. Eventually they reach this point that they don't acknowledge that God has put us here. My job is this. And for this particular king, he... um, Jessica, you threw me off. For this particular king... He was not brought back. He was not saved. He was given the same punishment that Nebuchadnezzar was given, only he failed to listen. And actually, I am sorry, I accidentally clipped a slide. I remember doing it now, and I feel kind of dumb. Uh, and so i got to read it directly out of the text. He is killed, but I cut short Daniel's message to the king, and I feel really dumb because this is like, the important part. So back up a little bit. He says, hey, listen, this is what the transcription means. This is what it means to you. It means you are in trouble. And uh, that's it. That's it. You are. That's it. You're you're done. Um, and so he says, uh, the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. Verse 22. And you, his son, again, not his son, but and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, meaning Belshazzar knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He got the warning and he ignored it, right? It's like how when you talk to guys who become like drug addicts, right, or alcoholics, say, well, that happens to other people, not me. And then when they get really into it and they're homeless and they're dying, they'll look and say, yeah, I might be, but look at that guy. He's worse. They lie to themselves or the snake rather, looks them in the eyes, and his eyes start swirling, and they slowly become seduced by their power, by the snake they're carrying, or the scorpion they're carrying. And ultimately, every snake and every scorpion will bite you. You know why? Because we are sinners. Because we are born broken. We are born failing. We are born far from God, and our flesh will always step in, and it will always seduce us into sin. That is a Romans 7 thing. Read it. It is the most comforting and hard text ever because Paul Paul himself says like, hey, the good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I hate, I do all the time. I don't know what's wrong with me. I sin so much and I can't stop. And so you have not humbled your heart though you knew this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you have been... Uh, or excuse me, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose, and whose are all your ways you, you have not honored. Um, and so he translates this text then, like that's right before he translates, but he basically says, listen, you knew all of this stuff and you ignored it. You got this message. You got the warning and you ignored the warning. You didn't have to learn it the hard way. There's a funny thing there. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar's glory, but he didn't want it the hard way. It is really hard to earn glory. It is really easy to ride someone else's coattails. He surely didn't want Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, but he refused to learn from it. And he ultimately had to do it the hard way. The snake seduced him and bit him. Everybody with me? People with power. Sometimes dads. I hate sermons on Father's Day that trash dads. 
Okay, so this is not me doing it, but this is the thing that I realized about myself while I was writing the sermon, and so I'm going to say it. Sometimes as dad, I like raising my voice and using my superpower. Everybody know the superpower? Dad voice. Dad voice. You speak and children act. No one else can do it. But it is our superpower, dad voice. And I'm extra dad voicey because I'm loud. And so dad voice kicks in. And sometimes I just want to use dad voice to get me a cup of coffee so I don't have to get out of bed in the morning. Right? But that is me drunk with power. Sometimes I want to use dad voice to get the kids to do what I want and not to get them to be like Jesus. Sometimes I want to use dad voice because I'm frustrated and it's easier to be mad at them than it is to be mad at me. Amen? And so authority corrupts us. Authority rides in like Sir Hiss and hypnotizes. And we have to carry it. But the real trick is learning to handle poisonous vipers without being bitten. We're going to jump ahead to the book of Luke. This is Jesus telling a story. This is a much harder story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He carried a scorpion. Everybody with me? He's got it right there in his hands. This wealthy man has his scorpion. He's got his snake. He carries it around with him because God gave it to him. And this is mine. I'm going to keep it. And it belongs to me. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now... There's an interesting thing about this story because it is not a parable, probably. There's a lot of discussion and argument about it. This is the only story where a specific man is named by name, which means this might be a true story. And Jesus might have been tactful by not saying the rich man's name. Isn't that terrifying? Like... But check this out. There's a bunch of parallels here. Rich man dressed in purple, everything. And a beggar at his door, covered in sores, longing to eat that man's garbage and the dogs. In Jewish culture, dogs were low. They called Samaritans dogs because they had such a low opinion of them. The dogs came and licked his sores. And sometimes you read that in modern context and think, that's gross. Actually, the dogs came and offered Lazarus more comfort than the rich man did. He's at his gates. He passes him every day. And he looks and says, that man is trash. Right? Or maybe from James, you know, what good is faith if you see a man hungry and naked and you say, be of good health and warm and then walk on without helping him? Can such a, man, can such a faith save you? No. You show your faith by what you believe. I'll show your faith by my faith by what I do. Um, that was the New Eric translation. It was very awful. I apologize. Um, and so this man, Lazarus, is at his gate. The dogs are showing him more compassion than the rich man is. The rich man is living it up and enjoying life. Is he doing anything specifically wrong other than ignoring the poor guy? Anyone? He's not a sinner. Isn't that crazy? He didn't do anything wrong. All he's doing is ignoring that fella. The time came when the beggar... Oh, Lord. The time came when the beggar died. 
And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades, read hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, he doesn't talk to Lazarus, mind you, it's kind of interesting, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. Now, Jesus is telling a story of a real person, which seems to be strongly hinted by the text. Then everybody in the room probably knows who he's talking about. This is probably the least pleasant eulogy ever done, right? Send Lazarus to give me some water. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, um, he says, listen, you got everything you wanted. You ain't getting anything more. That's it. It's done. Lazarus will not help you. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. By the way, real quick, before we jump on, there's a cool little parallel. Um, The rich man asked for Lazarus to be sent to hell, and he asked for him to be resurrected. Right? Does that sound familiar? Dude, that's Jesus, right? He says, listen, send Lazarus to hell. Hey, listen, resurrect Lazarus so he can warn my brothers. Abraham replied, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. Oh, my goodness. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, did this too. Why didn't you listen to him? Because I was seduced. The snake hypnotized me. Don't you know the truth of it? Don't you know this is who I am? It's not fair. Oh, I didn't read the second half of the verse. I jumped right to my funny graphic. Can you bump that? Oh, there it is. Uh, He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus, for I have five brothers. Warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. No, Father Abraham said. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone goes from the dead, or somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And ultimately, this is the hard part, right? When we become really full and comfortable and seduced, when we like get stuck in our place where the, the, the snake is in our hands and we're staring at it and it's good and it's fun and it's awesome and I'm comfortable and I have everything I could possibly want, or, you know, I, I'm stuck in this pattern, anyway, like, like, there are patterns we get stuck in that seduce us, right? We, we waste time on the Internet when there's nothing better to do and no one can watch us. And after a little while, that seduces us and we begin doing things we shouldn't. 
doing things we know that we would be ashamed of if anybody saw it, but it, it seduces us, puts us to sleep. And we say, but I know the story. I know the gospel. And I might know the gospel, but the things around me can, can seduce me. And ultimately, even if someone is raised from the dead, even if Christ has died for me and been risen, I won't hear it. And ultimately, what I'm kind of trying to argue here is, The story of what happened to this king who's seduced by his wealth and power, which would be easy. If I could just run the world, I'd make things right. Anybody there? If I was just rich, I would do things better than the current rich guys. You know what? It doesn't happen. If you're not righteous today, you won't be righteous tomorrow. If you're not righteous poor, you won't be righteous rich. If you're not righteous powerful, or if you're not righteous, you know, powerless, you won't be righteous powerful. To much... Or to him who much is given, much is expected. And if you can't be trusted with just a little, you sure as heck can't be trusted with a lot. And he says, listen, this ain't going to happen. Because ultimately, the story of Nebuchadnezzar like his, and his son, right? It's the story of the rulers and the pagans. This is the story of the wealthy and the chosen people. And the snake will seduce both, right? It'll happen. Now, here's where it gets ugly. This is John, so thank him. He contributed it. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left for us, but only a fearful expectation of the judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses How much more do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now... What on earth are you doing here, Eric? I am demonstrating a pattern. Watch this. Belshazzar treated a holy thing, the articles of the temple, as they were common. Right? He was seduced. He was hypnotized by wealth. And it was wonderful. And God judged him. He heard the warning, and he ignored it. The rich man treated Lazarus a holy thing. I mean, that dirty, filthy pile of garbage in my driveway was holy. The dogs are licking his sores. Everyone, everyone, including the rich man himself, was created by God and Christ died for him. Christ died for Belshazzar. Christ died for you. Christ died for the absent father that some of you guys had. Christ died for the neighbor that gossips about you. Christ died for everyone that you ever encounter. Every one of us was designed to be a holy thing in relation to God. Right? And sometimes we look at them and say, man, I don't want to deal with that guy. And that guy will die of his spiritual leprosy. And what Paul says, probably Paul, I don't know, I don't want to argue about who wrote Hebrews. uh, What Paul is saying here is, listen, I'm... If we take the blood of Christ and we treat it as something common, what else is there? We either treat the blood of Christ shed for us, covering us, renewing us, saving us as holy and wonderful and vital and 
everything. Or what else is there? Does that mean you can't be saved if you've sinned already? Absolutely not. Don't take that lightly. You can sin like the biggest ways possible and Christ will still forgive you, right? If I commit a sin and die before I have a chance to repent of it, it doesn't mean I go to hell, okay? I am in Christ. I am covered by the blood. I am a new creation. You you who believe in Christ, all it takes is faith and follow and you are saved. Like this is the truth of it, right? Saved. But if we toss that thing aside, if we drink wine out of it and make jokes out of it, if we treat it like a beggar that's disgusting and we're embarrassed that it's even there, it's easy to do that with the gospel, isn't it? Our culture especially. You look goofy and weird if you're a Christian. Actually, I've heard stories about a fellow who lived here before I came and passed away, and he would preach the gospel to everyone he encountered, hitchhikers, and he would take everybody in town who had been taken out to dinner to hear the gospel, right? Y'all, some of y'all know who I'm talking about. And a lot of folks made fun of him, and they were really uncomfortable about him because he was weird. I'm not, I, I only had this conversation with one person, so I don't know. And I'm not aiming at you or pointing fingers. He might have been weird. I didn't know him. But I know anybody will preach the gospel everywhere they go. I'm on their team. If we treat the blood of Christ, if we treat the gospel as a secondary thing that we're ashamed of, the same way that we can be ashamed of our brothers who are embarrassing because they smell bad and they're dirty and dogs are licking their open sores, if we treat it like it's nothing, we might as well be drinking out of the Holy of Holies equipment. What is the message here? The message is that sin, whether it's in power, whether it's in comfort, whether it's on the Internet, whether it's in your anger, whether it's in justifying your own actions, whether it's I'm seduced by my job. Anybody ever been that? All I do is work and I'll pray when I have time. The average pastor prays about three minutes a week. I prayed about five during the uh, service, so I got it nailed. (laughs) I am over the line, right? Because we're too busy. That's why pastors don't pray in America like the studies have found. We're just too busy to spend time praying because the work we do is more important than talking to God. And you can be seduced by your work. You can be seduced by your farm. You can be seduced by the neighbor's wife. You can be seduced by the Internet. You can be seduced by TV or your own kids. There are people who worship their families. You know them? Are you them? The truth is that the blood of Christ is supposed to cover all of that. It is not bad to enjoy money. Right? It is not bad to enjoy prestige. It is not wicked or sinful to enjoy a good meal. Unless it is the last slice of rhubarb pie, in which case it is mine, and that is theft or covet, and I will take you all on. And you'll ask Abraham to send down some pie, and he'll say, no. Sorry, I should not have said that. That was wrong. Um, My question is, like, the truth is that we have to carry snakes in our lives, Right? We have to. Dads, you've got to be in charge. You do. And you've got to have a job. You do. It was Tim Allen who said, women are wonderfully blessed in our culture because they have choices. They can go to work or they can be a stay-at-home or they can raise kids and have a family or they cannot or they can go to school or they cannot. Men have one choice. Go to work or go to jail. And we can become seduced by our choices and we can also be seduced by our work. We can be seduced by our prestige. We can be seduced by our shame. We can be seduced in the bottle. I did that for a long time. There ain't no hope in it. That's it. We have to carry our snakes. 
So what the heck do we do? Is our flesh always going to take us over? Actually, there's a great passage I'm not including in my slides because I realized it this morning when I was walking to work. Um, there's a great passage where it says that people who follow Christ will handle poisonous snakes, be bitten and not harmed. We are not about to become a snake handler church, but I considered making a joke about us bringing snakes next week. The literal read on that is wrong. The truth is, I will handle the snake of authority and it won't bite me. You know why? Because Christ's blood runs through my veins, not mine. When it's my blood and my hands and my authority and my this and my life and my that, I will always be seduced. Sir, his eyes will spin and I'll fall into sin because sin is fun. It feels good. It's in my nature. This is where I would insert the dogs eat my kids' sandwiches when they leave them on the floor because they are dogs. Sinners sin because we are sinners. I'm not wagging my finger at y'all. This is not a fire and brimstone sermon. This is a truth of the matter is we can handle the poisonous snakes in our lives because Christ died for us and we are new creations. And as long as we pick up the snake that is authority, that is money, that is power, that is prestige, that is appreciation, that is anything else, as long as you pick it up and you look at it and you say, this belongs to Jesus, not me. It will bite you all at once. It won't do nothing. But the moment you start looking in its eyes, the moment you start falling asleep, Larry, the moment you're hypnotized by Eric's melodious words, <laughs> is the moment the scorpion is staring and saying, now is my time, right? You know what I was when you picked me up. My encouragement and my challenge for you is, when you pick things up, when you pick up your kids, when you pick up your cell phone, when you pick up your authority and your money and your paycheck at the end of the day and your sandwich, because we can sure as heck turn food into a god, especially rhubarb pie, strawberry rhubarb pie. Rhubarb pie is good. The moment you pick it up, if you look at it and say, I know what this is, you are immune if you can say, I know who I am, and I know in whom I am. Christ saved you. Everything in your life falls under that. If you walked in the door today not knowing I am a dad because I am Christ's representative to my family. If you walked in the door not knowing I have to go to work tomorrow, but I'm going as Jesus' ambassador. If you walked in the door not knowing that that gross guy who lives down the street, you don't even want to deal with him, Christ died for him. Christ thought about him while he suffered. They jabbed the spear in his belly and pierced his heart from below. That blood and water that poured out covered that gross jerk, that obnoxious neighbor, that dad who never showed up. He was holy too. And our job, people, is to treat the blood of Christ as holy and to share it with everyone we encounter. Dads, your job is first to share it with your kids. And it's actually first to share it with your wife. And then to share it with your kids. And to share it with your neighbors. And very slowly to become Jesus. You should get together regularly and share that blood of Christ with each other. Because the gospel is everything we are. It is the sun. It is the rain. It is the soil. 
that makes us live, and it is wonderful. Amen? Should I do an altar call? You want to hear Mission Impossible? I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I, think, I think I was faithful to you today. And I pray that despite my confused muttering and my strange approach, that we wouldn't look at politicians and say, at least I'm not like that sinner, the politician. And we wouldn't look at the wealthy, self-centered man, the Hollywood celebrity, and say, at least I'm not like that guy or the tax collector, and we wouldn't stand up and say, at least I'm not like that tax collector, but that we would stand up and say, I am like all of them, but in Christ I can be something more. Help us to pick up the poisonous snakes in our lives. Help us to pick up our phone and not be drunk with the numbness that it brings us. Help us to pick up our family and not be drunk with the significance it feels like it gives us, but help us to, instead of drinking of it, pour ourselves out onto them pour the blood of Christ in our lives into the folks that we encounter, into our neighbors, into the beggars, into the the lepers and the perverts and the drunks and every broken person we encounter and the people who think they're not broken. Help us to share the gospel with them. And all God's people said, Udalali, amen. Have a good day, guys. Happy Father's Day.